to you this morning. Our desire is you, Lord. And as we've been worshiping, God, there's no other name, no other person that we want but you. Without you, God, we feel empty, Lord, and lost. But I know with you, God, we are fulfilled, content, and we have your joy. And we thank you so much for that. So we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us and you just, Lord, free us from our sin. Heal us today. Forgive us, Lord, and help us learn more about you. So anoint this time with your spirit, and may we find you in the midst of it all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. I read about one mother, and she wrote about this incident where she got locked out of her car. She writes this, Returning home one afternoon with my two daughters, Kimberly, age two, and Christy, six months, I pulled into the driveway and stopped to check the mailbox. But when I returned to the car, I found Kimberly had pushed the locks down on both doors, and I had left the key in the ignition. For an hour, I tried to explain to Kimberly how to pull up the door handle to automatically unlock the door and open it. I was on the verge of tears. My husband wasn't home, and since we live in the country, there were no neighbors to help. Finally, Kimberly stood up and softly tapped on the window. As I looked down at her, she said, Mommy, do you want me to roll down the window? Well, sometimes the solution to the problem is right there in front of you. As we continue our study in the book of Hebrews, the writer shows that God is given the solution to the problem of sin that separates us from him. And that solution really is right in front of us. And that is, you guys know, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the solution to sin. And that's the title of our message this morning, The Solution to Sin, The Solution to Sin. We're going to be studying Hebrews chapter 8 from verse 1 through 13, which is basically, it's the whole chapter. We're going to cover this whole chapter in one time this morning. Our outline today is this, number one, the new tabernacle, number two, the new mediator, and number three, the new covenant. So, The solution to sin, our title, let's begin here, number one in our outline, the new tabernacle, the new tabernacle. Take a look with me here now, Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. It reads here, now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister, verse 2, of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. We'll stop right there. We begin with the writer saying this in verse 1. Now, this is the main point. In other words, what he's writing is, here's the main thing I'm, I've been leading up to here all this time. And what is that? Well, we have a high priest, he writes here in verse 1. And we know who that is, right? We've been studying these chapters in the past weeks or so. And we have a high priest, that is Jesus Christ, who is where? Well, the writer puts here at the end of verse 1, in the heavens. So as we begin here, understand this first of all. Jesus is right now serving in heaven as our king and high priest. He's right there. This is completely different now from the Old Testament priests who served here on earth. But Jesus is serving in heaven. And this goes with the last few chapters where the writer's been showing us how Jesus is greater than any of the earthly priests for he is both 
king and priest. Remember, according to the order of Melchizedek, who was king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God. And so now, it, this leads us here in chapter 8 to see how Jesus is in heaven right now serving in this capacity as our king and high priest. Now, notice something here in verse 1. It says, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. So we see here, first of all, Jesus is our king there. He's sitting on this throne. He is the king, our Lord God. Majesty refers to the heavenly father. So he's at the right hand of, in the throne of the father. And the right hand speaks of the place of three things, honor, power, and blessing. Listen to what Revelations 5.13 says. There in the scripture it says, And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Who's that? Jesus Christ. This is exactly what we're talking about here in Hebrews. Now, as he's sitting on the right hand, it speaks of his honor and glory we could say and the honor is what jesus is given for his work on a cross dying on a cross sacrificing himself for our sins power is given to him power is the sovereign authority jesus holds as our lord and king so that's what the right hand symbolizes but one more thing honor power and blessing blessings is the jewish understanding of how a father would place his right hand on his firstborn to give him the blessings of his inheritance so this is jesus that's why he's seated at the right hand we see jesus as our lord and king listen to what john macarthur wrote the right hand of a monarch symbolized honor exaltation and power to stand at his right hand was honor but to sit there supreme honor so that's jesus christ that's our king but not only is jesus our king but he is also our high priest and so that's why in verse 2 it goes on and says that jesus is our minister our priest of the sanctuary he is the high priest in this sanctuary in heaven it's a heavenly sanctuary which is the writer says the true tabernacle in other words this is the real place of worship this is the real place where god is and you going to the the place to go worship him and it's not saying the temple in jerusalem or the tabernacle in the wilderness was false no it's saying that it, it's the real place here the old tabernacle and the jewish temple was more of a copy or a symbol we're going to see uh, later a shadow of what goes on in heaven it was a symbol the worship in heaven i was thinking about this like the ark that was placed in the holiest of holies which represented the presence of god well here in the heavenly tabernacle is where god resides where his throne is where god actually is so this place is what the lord has erected that's why it says here in verse 2 so it is in heaven not something man has made this is now this new place of worship to think about to focus in on this is the new tabernacle that's our heading 
You know, when Solomon's temple was dedicated to the Lord, you remember that the glory of the Lord came down and filled the temple, and so much so in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, that the priests, they couldn't function, they couldn't minister. They were so overwhelmed with the presence of God when they were dedicating that first temple. But you know what? In this new tabernacle, this tabernacle in heaven, God does not need to go down into it. And fill it. You know why? Because God is already there. This is heaven. This is where He resides. He lives right there. And take note of something. There's something else to see in this new tabernacle. It says in verse 1, Jesus is seated, right? And we talked about that honor and all. But think about this as a high priest, not just as a king. It says Jesus is seated, which for a high priest is very unusual. Now the Old Testament priests, they never sat down for they were constantly giving the offering. They were constantly doing ministry. They were offering up the sacrifices for sin and it really spoke that, that it, the sacrifices never completely took away sin and that's why there are no seats in the Jewish temple. But in contrast, Jesus being seated here, not only as king and honor and glory and blessing, but it says as a priest, his work has been completed. In other words, his death on the cross has fully paid for our sins. And so Jesus, our king and high priest, is seated in the heavenly tabernacle. Isn't that a great thought? Then the writer says this. Take a look at verse 3 now. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Okay, the writer goes on and he's saying earthly priest is called to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's what they did. They gave the sacrifice lambs and animals to atone for the sins of the people. Therefore... As Jesus is our high priest, this one, it says here, has something to offer too. And what is that? Well, it's actually talking about how Jesus offered up himself as a sacrifice for our sins, and that is his gift of atonement for our sins. So Jesus' sacrifice, as we spoke about, is complete. It paid for all of our sins. He did not have to keep dying for our sins, but that was the offering. That was the gift that the writer is talking about here. So the idea is that as Jesus serves in the new tabernacle in heaven, like any priest, now he has already made an offering for sin, that is himself, and that's all that is needed. That's the idea of what the writer is trying to put here. If you remember back in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, the second part, we, we studied that last time. For this he did, it says, once for all when he offered up himself so as a priest he did give a gift and 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 that's what he didn't want and i'm going to explain a little bit more in a moment verse four now it says for if he were on earth he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law the writer saying hey if jesus were here on earth he will not qualify even to be an earthly priest according to the law right we've been studying he was not of the tribe of levi but he was the order of melchizedek if you miss those messages you can grab them we're getting deep into some doctrinal things here in hebrews but that, that's what it's saying but the writer's saying hey it's okay for jesus for 
Jesus was to be the high priest for the new tabernacle, which is something no earthly priest could do. Yet, what the earthly priest did was to serve in the temple, and that was still a holy work, a holy holy place. For they are priests, look at verse 5, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. All right. The writer saying when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, not only did he have the Ten Commandments, but he also carried the blueprints for the tabernacle. And this earthly tabernacle was according to what the, the pattern was. It was according to the pattern of what was in heaven. And notice it says here, it was a copy and shadow of what? Of the real one in heaven. Like it may look similar, it may have a similar shape, but it only resembled the real thing. So the idea is this, the earthly tabernacle pointed to what Christ was to do in the heavenly tabernacle. This is what the writer's trying to portray here. Remember now, the book of Hebrews is written to who? The Jewish believers. And the temple, the rituals, the traditions, they grew up all of in all of that. And that was very important to every Jew. And now they're believers in Jesus. And so the writer's trying to tell them that, hey, you know what we grew up with? You know, you know the temple and all that. That was just a shadow. It was a silhouette of what the real thing is. It was only this fuzzy copy of the real thing of what's going on in heaven where the worship really is going on. And the sacrifices in the temple They were only pointing to what Jesus, our high priest, would do in dying for our sins and then dealing with sin once for all. So that now forgiveness and freedom from guilt of sin would be found in Jesus. And so the writer's like, now, you guys, as believers, Jesus is serving us, ministering in that heavenly tabernacle. So this brings us to this point. The old tabernacle pointed to the reality of the new one where Jesus now serves as our king and priest. Let me say that again. The old tabernacle pointed to the reality of the new one where Jesus now serves as our king and priest. And that's what the writer is saying in this section. I know it's a little difficult as we read it, but hopefully as I explain it to you, you can see that the writer is just saying, hey, hey, you know that old tabernacle? hey, you know what the real thing is? The reality is there's a new one and Jesus is serving there as our king and priest. You know, I was thinking about this in this way before our modern technology with our phones and stuff. Do you remember, uh, you older people, how we would carry a photo, an actual photograph, right, in our wallet, right, or in our purses of our loved ones, our family, our kids, you know, my wife and and, and you would pull out your wallet and you could show pictures, yeah? To other people, hey, this is my wife or this is my family or, you, you know, here we are. Remember, uh, those are the old days. Now you could just pull out your phone, right? But you remember that. I remember um, carrying a photo of my wife and I, when I'd travel, go on missions trips and, you know, and I would share, you know, this is my wife. They say, well, you know, are you married? What's your family? And I bring photos just so they can see. And then, and then me too, I could be praying for her on our trip. 
Now what if I came home, I would pull out that photo and start looking at it and saying, oh, I miss you. Oh, I really, and I'm home already, right? Oh, I, I really miss you. I, I, I really love you, you know, and you're, you're so special to me. You know what? My wife would be standing there like this and say, uh, I'm standing here right here. What's wrong with you, right? It, it's only a photo. It's only a copy. Well, that's what the writer's getting to with the Jewish believers, to see that the rituals, the offerings, going to this temple, all that stuff that they were been doing is just a photo copy you can say of the real thing so he's saying why hold on to the copy when the real thing is now available why hold on in that way and look to that when jesus he's our priest he's the one when you can go straight to him and have this direct relationship with god he's trying to tell him look the old tabernacle just pointed to the reality of this new one now where Jesus serves as our king and priest. Listen, we can limit our relationship with God in the same way. You know how? By thinking that, well, our good deeds will somehow keep us like there in that good place with God. That somehow when, when we do nice things or have nice thoughts, that well, you know, then God will be pleased with me. He'll accept me. But, It's not the sacrifice and offerings of good works that do that. That's the old way of thinking, right? I mean, how many of you, you know, we grew up that way. I mean, this is our society, reward and punishment, right? You work hard in school, you get an A, right? You you do what you're told at work and you fulfill your duties, you get a raise, right? So you do good, you do well, and then... Right? You're rewarded in some way or another in that way. So we get this thinking that when we come to God, well, if we do good, if we do this, we have a good attitude, we give our money, we come church, and we give that kind of offering and sacrifices to the Lord, then, hey, we're good with God. But that's not the sacrifices of good works that, that, that really please God. That's an old way of thinking. You know, those thoughts, I've got to be good so that God will love me and accept me. That should be in the past as a believer wanting to be loved by god and doing good to be accepted by god let me tell you first of all that's a good thing it was good what they did they went to the temple they went gave her their sacrifices but what they did in following the laws was to point to their savior what they did was only a copy or shadow of the real thing we're going to talk more about that in a little bit but know this today you guys god does love you even as a sinner and that's why jesus died for you you are accepted you are forgiven because of what jesus has done on the cross he already made the sacrifice he already made the offering jesus is your atonement he made that sacrifice for you became your atonement and now we can go on and have a real relationship with god not some photocopy not doing something to that we feel good because of our good works but now Jesus can be a real part in our life because he took care of all all of that. Let me say it this way. Don't don't think that that's your relationship with God. Well, if I do good, then maybe he'll like me. No, don't settle. That's good to go after that. But understand today that you can know God through Jesus, through him. Sacrifice is done. Now there's a way for you to know him. And I'll tell you, don't settle for less. Like, oh, if I do the good works thing. Don't settle for anything but the real thing. 
understand what he's done, believe in it, and then now you can know God for real. All right, let's move on here to number two now, the new mediator. In the solution to sin, we see number one, the new tabernacle. Now number two here in our outline, the new mediator. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. It says here, but now he is obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises we'll stop there now he that's jesus has been given a more excellent ministry his ministry is way above the earthly one his ministry is superior to what was going on before his ministry is to be we read here a mediator and we've been talking about that uh, uh, plenty, you know, in the past chapters. But the mediator is a go-between God and man. And in a sense, what Jesus is doing is unlike the earthly priest from, for, you know what, Jesus is both God and man, right? He can be a better mediator because he, he, he can mediate both sides. He understands. He knows both sides. But an earthly priest can only relate to the human side where Jesus being God can relate to both. So Jesus serves as a mediator, now it says, of a better covenant. That is opposed to the old covenant, which meant coming to God through the laws and the rituals, the sacrifices and all in the temple. Jesus has made and promotes the new covenant, which is to come to God through his work on the cross. That's the better covenant. That makes it better because it's through him and what he's done. And it says here, this better covenant is based on what? Better promises. Now, we're going to see more detail in the verses below this. But basically understand this. It promises the better covenant, the new covenant. It promises a relationship that is inward, intimate, and everlasting. As opposed to the old way, the old covenant, that was external, impersonal, and limited so keep that in mind that's why he says in verse 7 now for if that first covenant had been faultless then no place would have been sought for a second see the writer saying if the first covenant that old covenant with the laws and rituals coming to the temple if if that was faultless i mean if, if that could bring people to god if that did the job bringing man into the relation with a relationship with god took care of the whole sin issue sin problem that separated us then you know what he's saying there would be no need to have a second or a new covenant but jesus has brought a better one god would have just stuck with the first one right but he didn't because it didn't really bring a lasting solution to sin so that's why this is the idea the writer saying jesus is the mediator to the way better covenant the writer showing again these jewish believers that the law and the rituals set uh the standard and procedures to be right with god that, that's what he's saying it, it's all right the old covenant the law showed us where we went wrong but it didn't give us the solution to be forgiven and cleansed by it the rituals of, for the atonement for sins. You know what? It showed us how we can get right, but it, it didn't last long. Uh, the sacrifice of blood, it needed to be there. 
so we can be forgiven of our sins and made right with God. But they only covered the sin for a while. They did not remove the sin. And so it was only a temporary situation, a temporary solution. Sin was still keeping us from having an intimate relationship with God. But God, with all of this that we're talking about here, He was working His plan. He sent His Son to die on a cross for sins, and through that, He brought that solution to sin. Christ's death and resurrection would atone for our sins and once for all conquer sins, and then we can be freed, you guys. Freed from the bondage of sin. And that's the solution to sin. That's the lasting solution to the sin problem. The better promise is that when a person believes and accepts Jesus, God promises that Christ's blood will be applied to your situation. That you will be forgiven and you will be made right with God. This is what Jesus said. This is our mediator of this better covenant. Think about this as Jesus is your mediator. When you came to Christ, yeah, when you said the prayer, maybe you came forward or you said a prayer in your heart, uh, Jesus was up in heaven serving. Jesus was advocating for you. He was your mediator. When you accepted Jesus, believed in what he did, your status changed and you became a child of God, a citizen of heaven. And Jesus went to the Father and said, hey, this one has has believed in my work on the cross, my sacrifice of blood when I died on the cross. And, and, And it's applied to this one now. And now he, now she is one of ours. So he's advocating for you. That is his ministry. This is our high priest going before God the Father on our behalf you see why this is a better arrangement than before in this new covenant in this better covenant this role of what jesus is doing the new mediator our heading and so now whenever someone comes to christ jesus is mediating and he becomes their priest their personal priest you could say so the point here is this Whenever a person comes to Christ, he is mediating for them as their personal priest. Whenever a person comes to Christ, he is mediating for them as their personal priest. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, the right, John writes here, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Isn't that wonderful to know? We come to the Lord, we're saved. But then even after, he says, my little children, I write to you. You know what? If, if you sin, if you fail again, if you fall, you know what? No worries. You have an advocate. You have a mediator with the Father. And you know who that is? That's Jesus. And Jesus died for all your sins. For, for before you're saved, for For after you were saved, he died for all your sins. I know about you, that's such a comforting verse for me. That Jesus is for me. That Jesus is my advocate. We know that Satan is what? The accuser of the brethren, right? In Revelation 12, 10, it says he's the accuser of the brethren. He's always going to God. He's going before him, trying to get us in trouble, accusing us of sin. Like in the book of Job. 
But even though he's right, I know he's right about me, because we have fallen in sin, you know what? Jesus is still our advocate. Picture this, in this way. I've heard pastors talk about this, and, and I've always, you know, when growing up in, in Christ, I remember, oh, it just warmed my heart. Like, picture a courtroom in heaven. Jesus is like our defense attorney, and God the Father is the judge. And Satan, he's the prosecutor, and he, he brings out the charges, all the wrong. He brings out our sins. He brings out the failure. He, he's bringing out what I've done. He manipulates the, the words to make me look even worse and make me even feel worse right? And then Jesus, my advocate, speaks. He tells the Father, well, it's true, all the crimes that I've done. But then Jesus proclaims that I have put my faith in him, and now my sins have been covered by his blood, and I am forgiven. Jesus has covered it with his payment that when he died on a cross, and you know what? Then the Father declares, case closed, foul, done. And you know what? Satan has nothing on me no more. What does Romans 8, 1 says? Therefore, there is no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, you guys. No more. You know, when they were worshiping the Lord in, in heaven and the martyred saints were crying out that they have been covered by the blood of the Lamb, that they've been forgiven, that they've been free, that they've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. And, and that the enemy could not come against them, against that and the word of their testimony. We've seen that sometimes. That's what it's talking about, that Satan cannot condemn you any longer. You've been covered by the blood of the new covenant. You have been forgiven and freed of your guilt and sin. So don't let the enemy get you down anymore. Someone wrote this poem. I hear the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. Jehovah findeth none. Though the restless foe accuses, sins recounting like a flood, every charge our God refuses, Christ has answered with his blood. Amen. Well, let's go on here to number three, our last heading, the new covenant. The new covenant. The solution to sin, and we find it in number one, the new tabernacle. Number two, the new mediator. Now number three, the new covenant. The new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8 now, and this will be our last section. Verse 8 says, Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. We'll stop there. Okay, the writer says, since the old covenant had faults, like it, it did not do the job, God now, he said, I'm going to bring about a new covenant. And God gave a prophecy about this. And now the writer, you know, he's been quoting the Old Testament. Well, here in this section, he quotes Jeremiah 31 from verse 31 through 34. And this is the quote here. It says that God will bring a new covenant. That's our heading. That is not according to, or it's not going to be like the old one. It's not going to be this covenant that he made with Israel when they led him 
when he led them by the hand out of Egypt. When they left Egypt and Moses went to Mount Sinai, brought down the commandments and everything that they were need to do in the old covenant, in the tabernacle with the sacrifices and all. No, God is saying this will be a brand new and different covenant. It's going to be different from the law, different from what they were given at that time. And he makes a comment here that the Israelites did not continue to follow what God uh, had given them. So God disregarded them. Now that means that he did not deal intimately with them, but he had to discipline them. And we know the history of Israel with those. So these failed in upholding the law, and which was more, if you think about it, an external requirement and a legalistic ritual. But, God had a new plan in mind. And with the new covenant, and this is the promise, the better promise that was spoken of before. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none of his brothers saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. And then verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. How beautiful is this? This is a beautiful new way of having this relationship with God now. This is the new covenant. This is the gospel. This is the coming to God through Jesus Christ. This is the lasting solution to sin. This is what the new covenant is, and thus our heading. Now, I want to give you four aspects to the new covenant that we see in these verses. First of all, the new covenant brings an inward change. Number one, an inward change. The new covenant brings an inward change. Look at verse 10, the second part. The Lord says, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. So rather than the old law, the old way, right? This external motivation to get them obey, law written on stone tablets. God is saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something different. I'm going to put my truths, my principles. It's going to be written on your hearts now. It's going to put, be put inside you. And the motivation will come from within, from your mind, from your hearts. So rather than this stone tablet overseeing, you better do this, you better do that. Rather than doing that, we're going to be motivated from within. We're going to want to do that. Rather than, I'll put it this way, obeying God to get saved, we obey because we are saved now. We obey because we love God, because we want to live for Him, because God has changed our heart. And that's the idea. In Ezekiel 11, verse 19, and this is the NLT version, it says, And I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart. That's the idea. Now it's going to come from within. Not from this rule above, but we're going to be changed. We're going to be given, you know what? A heart transplant. A brand new heart. God will start changing us from the inside out. Secondly, the new covenant brings an intimacy with God. Number two, an intimacy with God. Verse 10, uh, the, the bottom part says, And I will be their God, 
and they shall be my people. The old covenant was, it was more distant, our relationship with God. It was more impersonal, you know, more far away in that way. But because we've been forgiven and made righteous in Jesus, God, think about this now, God can actually live inside us, right? We know Galatians 2.20 that Jesus lives inside us. Our relationship with God is now much more intimate and personal. No longer is God on a mountain and the Israelites down below and Moses in between and, and all. They were, they were fearful. But now we can have this intimate, personal, close relationship because of what Christ has done. Bruce Barton says, This reveals a positive, close relationship between God and His people. In the first covenant, people continually failed to live up to this relationship. In the new covenant, this relationship is secured through Jesus Christ. And I like that. Because what he's saying, it's not, our relationship is not based on our performance now. Our relationship is based on what Jesus has done for us. So that's why we can have now this continual close relationship with Him. A personal relationship. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? So the new covenant brings, number one, an inward change. Number two, an intimacy with God. And then number three, now, an individual connection an individual connection look at verse 3 none of the, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none in his brother none of his brothers saying know the lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them in other words each person will have their own direct connection to the lord an individual connection that's our head title here or heading here each believer will have their own individual fellowship with God and know God personally it really underlines the intimate relationship but to say specifically that you can know God just you you can go to the Lord before the people had to go and meet God with how through a priest yeah only and only certain people and leaders and prophets will even have the Holy Spirit living in them but now every believer has that access and not just specially chosen ones but as the writer says, from the least to the greatest. The Holy Spirit can live inside us, and then we all have this individual connection with God. And with the Holy Spirit living inside us, you know what? He empowers us so we can live for Him, so we can, we can be a light for Him, so we can minister. He empowers us. Only like prophets and kings had that in the Old Testament. But now we have an individual connection. You know what? That was the amazing thing in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost when the apostles and believers in the upper room were baptized with the Holy Spirit. This was the new work of God in their lives. Before, never before it was like that. But now in Acts 2, when that came to pass and the church was being born, the new work of the Holy Spirit was in this new covenant that the Holy Spirit can live inside us and empower us. So, the new covenant brings these four things. Number one, an inward change. Number two, an intimacy with God. Number three, an individual connection. Number four, an include, or I'm sorry, one more thing, an inclusive forgiveness. Verse 12 now, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. 
don't know about you, but this is one of those verses you highlight. This is one of those that you go back to. This is amazing. You know what he's saying? That God will forgive our sins and the wrong we did. And think of this. Remember it no more. How can that be? Doesn't God know all things? Does that mean he forgets things? Does that mean that, well, maybe someday he might forget me? No, that's not what it's saying. What it means is that God will not hold my sin against me anymore. He will not hold that sin against me after it has been forgiven. How can he do that? How can he not hold it against me? Because it's been dealt with. It's been done with when it was put upon the cross and Jesus died for that. That's how he does. That's how it's been done. God's forgiveness is inclusive. That means it's complete. It's all-encompassing. It fully accomplishes what it is supposed to do. The new covenant comes with this all-inclusive forgiveness. Done, you guys. Jesus paid for all my sins, remember? That's why God can say, I will remember no more. I don't know about you, but that's so comforting to know. It's hard to understand and conceive. It's hard to accept sometimes, but this is the truth staring at us right from the pages of our Bible. You know, it's so different because we're used to people saying, I will forgive, but I will not forget, right? Is that real forgiveness? Well, we see example here. God fully forgives. So understand these four things. The new covenant brings, number one, an inward change. Number two, an intimacy with God. Number three, an individual connection. And number four, an inclusive forgiveness. Listen, the old way could not accomplish this. It could not do this. So no wonder the writer is writing here. And then, then he comes to hear our last verse in this chapter. No wonder he says this, verse 13. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. No wonder the writer writes this because God brought what he calls this new covenant. That's what he's saying here. And it's much better. That's why the old covenant is made, what he says here, obsolete. Yeah? It's, it's ready to vanish away. In other words, it, it really, it ended when Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead. That's when it really ended. So that all this temple stuff is fading away. It's obsolete now. There's no need for it any longer because the new one is here to replace it. I think it's interesting that he writes as vanishing away because about perhaps five years after this was actually written, the Jewish temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And that old system vanished, you can say. No more priests, no more sacrifices, even all the way to this day. There's no temple. All of that was gone. Interesting. I was thinking, well, maybe this was a little prophecy here. The idea is the new way through Christ accomplished a goal so the old system no longer was needed. Even with that, on the last night of Jesus' life, Jesus knew that was happening, and he basically took the celebration of the Passover and changed it into communion. Remember, they had the Passover meal, and then after that, right? 
He changed it all into do, doing communion, which we do once a month on the first Sunday. Passover was a remembrance of how God delivered Israel from Egypt when the death angel came, killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians. The Jews were to sacrifice a lamb and then spread its blood of atonement on the, on the doorposts on the houses of the Israelites so they would be spared of that judgment. And that was Passover. But no longer was the blood of the lamb required because Christ became our lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. So that night, the night before he died on the cross, Jesus changed Passover to communion. And he said this, Matthew 26, verse 26, Jesus said, and as, well, it says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. Then in verse 27, chapter 26, Matthew, it says, then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the, what, new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. Does that make sense now? Do you see what's going on? The animal sacrifices could only cover the sin, but the death of Jesus and his resurrection could remove sin from our lives, free us from sin, remove what was separating us from God, and bring lasting forgiveness. And that is, where we find the remission, as Jesus said, or the forgiveness for our sins. So our last point is this. The old covenant has been made obsolete by the new covenant by complete forgiveness. The old covenant has been made obsolete by the new covenant of complete forgiveness. And that's the solution to sin, you guys. Sin separates us from our holy God, right? We cannot come into His presence. We're, 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 we're destined for judgment. But with Jesus dying on the cross now, we can have forgiveness now, be made righteous, and be able to be brought into the presence of God. So the old covenant was made obsolete by the new covenant of this complete forgiveness. I was thinking... I don't know, here's another thing that shows my age. Uh, you remember um, floppy disks? Remember that? Remember the old, what, what was that, five and a quarter or something? They were actually really floppy. You could, whoosh, you know. And, and then they got harder. They still call them floppy disks, but they're like three and a half inches, and you have to stick it in, a button, right? What happened to those? I may have one in the box, but can you use it? No, they're obsolete. Why? What do we have today? Flash drives, right? USB drives, right? Remember that? Think about today now. CDs are starting to go, right? I mean, I, I, I buy it digitally and download it. And I don't really use CDs anymore, right? Uh, DVDs are becoming obsolete because I'm doing the same thing, downloading it digitally now, right? I mean, who would have known, right? Something that we use every day now, no need. It's obsolete. We have a new way. Well, that's the idea now. The old covenant, doing the work thing, doing the sacrifices, it's made obsolete. Like I was saying earlier, yeah, it's good to want to know that, to do that. It's good to want to be right with God and trying to do that through that way, but now there's a new covenant, and it's brought in this better way, better promises that we can be completely forgiven. 
And with that complete forgiveness, we're able to come to God. We're able to go to heaven. We're able to have this intimate relationship with Him. We need forgiveness of our sins. We need to be freed of our sins and be made righteous. And you know what? That's what Jesus did. And that's what the law could not do. The law could not forgive. It only condemned. It could not produce good works. It only showed how bad of a sinner you are. It could not make us righteous. It only told us you're not righteous. But Jesus changed all that so that we can be forgiven completely, that we can become a new creation and do good works, that we can be made righteous and go to heaven and be with God. That with Jesus in us, that forgiveness and righteousness, that the Holy Spirit could live inside of us. So you understand how huge this is? Jesus died so that we can be forgiven and, and be accepted by God. Is that something you're yearning for today? Is that something that, that is deep inside of you? I mean, sometimes we, 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 we do all kinds of things to get there, but we can't get there. And we're burdened with guilt and condemnation. But we want to know God. And we know in the back of our mind that that's who we need. And we want Jesus, but still we can't shake it. We still we, we get down on ourselves. But Jesus is saying, it's all right. Come to me. I love you. I've taken care of that part. And now, you know what? I could give you what you need. There's an a old story of a, a Spanish father who had a son, and they had become estranged. The son ran away, and the father set off to find him. He searched for months to no avail. Finally, in a last desperate effort to find him, the father put an ad, actually, in the Madrid newspaper. The ad read like this, Dear Paco, Meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon on Saturday. And then he wrote, All is forgiven. I love you, your father. Well, on that Saturday, 800 Pacos showed up looking for forgiveness and love from their father. Is that you? Are you looking for true forgiveness? Have you, have you been burying that hurt, doing all kinds of crazy things to bury that? but it still causes you problems? Are you struggling because you don't feel forgiven? Maybe you sit there today, maybe this is another thing, and you don't even think about all the wrong that you've done. But think about how holy God is. I think sometimes we need to think about the seriousness of the holiness of God so that we would be humble to think about, you know what? Who am I to even come into your presence? Who am I, Lord? But thank you, Jesus, that you forgive me, and I can now. No matter what you may be going through today, it all starts here, you guys. Real, the realization of sin and repent, come humbly to God. It starts here for all of us that we can be forgiven, and God is ready to forgive us. Have you been living in condemnation? Have you been living under the devil's accusations? You're no good. God doesn't love you because of what you did. God won't forgive you, but that's a lie. What we're reading today and in this passage, everything that Jesus has done and where he is right now is saying, I forgive you. I'm there for you. I'm your advocate. I'm mediating for you. 
And I hope this truth that we learn today, it's a doctrine, yes, but it builds a foundation in our lives. It, it gives us this footing that we can live upon and build upon and grow upon. It should be set within our heart and mind so no matter what Satan may say and accuse us, well, how he may come in and try and destroy us and divide us and, and bring us down and, and, and discourage us and depress us, that we would stand upon the rock, Jesus, because of what he's done for us. So hold on to what you know. Hold on to what you've learned today. Don't keep going back to that past, right? Leave it at the cross and move forward. And maybe that's what's been messing you up lately. I'll close with this. Corey Jim Boom had these words to say regarding forgiveness now. She writes, It was 1947. I had come from Holland to a defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from ho a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiveness, forgiven sins are thrown into. So she writes, When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. Then God places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. Let's not fish where God says to leave it be. Do you understand that now? All that Jesus has done, that sin is no longer that issue between you and God if you come to Christ, if you go to the cross. We just need to believe and obey. We just need to go to Jesus and find the solution to sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us of our sins right now. As we confess them to you and repent, Lord, cleanse us from unrighteousness. We know you're just and faithful to do that, as 1 John 1, 9 says. And we rely upon the truths that are in your word, not what we feel, not our perspectives, but we know that the past, our failures, our sin and wickedness and the evil that we've done can be laid to rest at the cross. And your blood can cover it and cleanse me of sin. Help us to see that you're right now at the right hand of God, sitting upon your throne as our king, but you are also our priest. You are for us and not against us. You are our advocate and our mediator, and you're even there interceding and praying for us. Jesus, may we see that you are the solution in our lives, that you are the answer, that you are the solution to the sin that separates us from God. And so, Lord, may we embrace you and honor you today. May we acknowledge you as our holy God, Lord. And as we are ushered into your presence and how we can be with you now, Lord, may we acknowledge that, knowing that we can be in that presence and see you in all your glory because of what you have done on the cross. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Blessings, honor, and glory and power be given to you. Your name, Jesus. Amen.
Let's all stand and we'll close with one last song.